Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to the first season and to the kickoff show of Bootlegged Innovations. On this week's show, we are going to discuss platform economics and the platform revolution with the person that literally wrote the book. But prior to getting in and uh, meeting our guest, what I would like to first do is give you a little bit of background on myself as the host and a little bit of a story on uh, the brand behind Bootlegged Advisors that I think will tell you most of what you need to know about me. Uh, whenever we started trying to figure out what the brand of the new company was going to be and the brand for the show, I called up one of my best friends who is a branding expert. And fortunately for me, he has this little exercise he likes to call brand speed dating. And he told me the way that this little exercise worked was that uh, he was going to ask me a series of questions. Based on every question he asked me, he needed me to tell him a story. Based on that story, he was then going to give me three pieces of information. The first one was an iconic brand that, he, that my story reminded him of. The second one was an iconic person not related to the brand that the story reminded him of. And the third and final piece of information was something that we could actually call my company. And as we started going through it, he let me know that somewhere between a half an hour and two and a half hours, we would come up with a brand that I absolutely fell in love with. And so we started brand speed dating. So he started asking me the logical questions. What's a company going to do? Who are you going to sell to? Who within that company would actually buy from you? Why would that company with that person buy from you instead of somebody else? And then 29 minutes into the conversation, he throws me a curveball and asks me about my first job, to which I said, Wes, do you want to know about my first job, my first career, or the way I used to make money? To which he said, the third one sounds the most interesting, John, why don't we start there? And I said, Wes, as you know, at the age of 12, my father passed away. And overnight, my mom went from being a Sunday school teacher to a bartender. And very quickly, it became evident that my mom was going to make between $125 and $175 a week take home. And while I wasn't a math genius, what I did know is that my teenage years were absolutely going to suck with a single income household with a mom making $125 to $175 a week. So I had to figure out how to make more money. And no amount of mowing grass, raking leaves, shoveling snow, or running paper routes that I've been doing since I was six was going to change that reality. So I started thinking, how can I make more money? And then it dawned on me that middle school and high school kids want to drink on the weekend, but they can never find a reliable supply of alcohol. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, well, I've got a mom that's a bartender, but I can't buy the liquor off my mom because one, she was just a Sunday school teacher yesterday, so she'd never sell the stuff to me. And secondly, if I got caught, mom could go to jail. Certainly don't want mom to go to jail. So where do we go from there? It just so happened that I also had an uncle. My uncle Mike, uh, he'll probably call me up and, and shoot me for telling this on the air, but my uncle Mike had been to, been to jail a few times and actually had fond stories of being in jail and, and still had some of his friends that were still in jail. And Uncle Mike was an amazing welder. And Uncle Mike would do just about anything for 20 bucks and a case of beer. And so my Uncle Mike and I started talking about this business plan. 
And Uncle Mike made me a couple big baskets for my bicycle, and we put cinder blocks and bricks in it to make sure I could still steer it. And I made five to eight deliveries every Friday night, and I would make between 12 and 15 every Saturday. Every time I'd get a new load, I'd have to give Uncle Mike 20 bucks. After a couple weeks, Uncle Mike actually quit his day job as a welder and came to work for me full-time on weekends. And uh, I was netting between eight and 1,200 bucks a weekend as a 12-year-old on a bicycle selling liquor. To which my good friend said to me, Schultz, he goes, you've been a bootlegger all your life. He said, uh, your brand, that iconic brand that I can associate with you is Gentleman's Jack Daniels. The famous person I can associate you with is Bill the Real McCoy, the only bootlegger to never really break any laws because he did everything outside of international trade waters. And the brand for your company is Bootlegged Advisors. And whenever I got with Randall Libero, the executive producer of the show, we decided we were going to, since the, the show focuses a lot on innovation and the evolving platform economy, that we were going to call this show Bootlegged Innovations. And I'm proud this week to introduce uh, the first two guests on the show. They're both a couple of Midwestern transplants, much like myself, one of them from Minnesota, one of them from Ohio. Uh, the first guest I'd like to introduce is a gentleman by the name of Andy Tim. He's a subject matter entrepreneur. He's an investor. He can, he's an ecosystem champion. He's a backyard innovation host. And he's also a digital orchestrator. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be one of the first guests. And my second guest is Marshall Van Elstein. Marshall wrote the book, Platform Revolutions, uh, and really taught us about platform economics, which is the topic we're going to dis dis uh, discuss today. Mar Marshall is an author. He's a professor. He's a researcher. He's a son of a constitutional lawyer. And from what I understand, we'll get into this a little bit later, he's also the master of the Heimlich Maneuver. Marshall, welcome to the show. John, thanks. It's a real pleasure. See if we can talk about breaking a couple of rules today. <laughs> Andy, let's start with you. What in the world is a digital orchestrator and why does the market in this type of platform economy need one? Good question, John. Uh, so as technology continues to accelerate at, a, at an increasing pace, um, there's a chasm, widening chasm between business on one side and technology on the other. So if you're, if you're running a business, your focus is on, you know, cutting out operational costs, um, coming up with your next incremental innovation, running a lean and mean business, you know, your performance engine. Um, you're not necessarily an expert on all of the things on the technology side of the chasm that are coming at you. So you've got this alphabet soup of, of, of emerging technologies with IoT and AR, VR, XR, AI, ML, um, on and on and on, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it can be paralyzing. Every company needs to go through a digital transformation and needs to understand how these emerging technologies can be applied to their business. But as you're an expert in your opportunities and challenges and, and emerging business models, how do you understand all of these technologies and how they can be applied? On the other side of that chasm, you've got technology companies, lots of different startups, um, the vast majority of the emerging technologies popping up today are not solutions onto themselves. They are a component, or as I call it, a wedge. You and I have talked about this, you know, I use this trivial pursuit analogy where um, in trivial pursuit, you've got to get all six of the little plastic wedges to win the game. In this analogy, 
business solutions need to collect all of the jobs. Every job that needs to be done for value to be created needs to be represented. So if you forget to solve for who's going to do the implementation and the training and the support, you've got a customer that doesn't have a full solution and you're kind of asking them to go figure out the rest of it. So, so a digital orchestrator is someone who has a foot in each camp. They're, they're trusted by the business to understand those challenges and opportunities and guide the conversation in a way that applies the appropriate emerging technology or technologies and then you know, narrows down that list of potential innovations to things that can be built. And then on the other side is, is trusted and has a large ecosystem of technology providers to say, to make this business, you know, this intended business outcome work, we need these six things and I'm going to go find the six partners that want to be those six things. So it truly is an orchestration effort. So that's where we came up with digital orchestration. Fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Marshall, what is it exactly you mean by the term platform and why does your research uh, point to the fact that this actually qualifies as a revolution? So uh, I love starting with some of the definitions. Well, thank you for that. So let's see if we can be clear about that. So what I think a platform is, is an open architecture with rules of governance to facilitate interaction. So open architecture is what lets other people in your ecosystem to help you build. So Uber wants other drivers on its platform. Amazon wants other shops selling on its platform. Airbnb wants third parties on its platform. So you need open architecture. Rules of governance uh, tell others how they can come in and help you out. So uh, Andy was just talking about orchestration. And if others are going to come and help build with you, you need to give them the rules on how they create value and how they take value and how you're going to resolve any conflict uh, if and when that ever emerges. And the interactions, well, that's what actually creates the value. So when you take a ride or you read a post or you stay or you conduct a search, it's that interaction that's actually creating the value or you, or you conduct some business on top of the platform. So it's, it's really these three different things. The platform is a, an open architecture that invites third parties in with rules of governance and the interactions that help you create the value. So why is this a revolution? If you take a look at the world's largest firms today, seven of the top 10 are now platforms. It's Google, it's Amazon, it's Facebook, but it's also Tencent and Alibaba in China. One of the things that we claim is we're seeing gigantic monopolies today, just like the monopolies that we saw a century ago that were in oil and steel and railroads, but the economics are really different. A century ago, these are all driven by supply side economies of scale. So you might get high fixed costs and low marginal costs. So if it's electricity, your first power plant is incredibly expensive, but your second water electricity is really inexpensive. Or if you're shipping railroad car from New York to Chicago, your first transshipment is incredibly expensive, but your second one, very inexpensive. So you get these natural monopolies emerging. What's happening today um, for Facebook and Airbnb and, and Amazon and Tencent, these are driven by network effects, but economists call these demand side economies of scale. And what's happened is, it was, and we're talking about orchestration, if users are creating value for other users, then it attracts users which helps them create value, which attracts users, which create value. So you're shifting your demand curve up as opposed to your supply curve down. So it's the opposite side of the profit equation. So we're seeing the emergence of these winner-take-all markets and these gigantic firms, monopolies like those of a century ago, but the reasons fundamentally different than the reasons that we saw a century ago. So that's why we're calling it a revolution. And could you tie that into one of the other big topics you explain in the book, which is the network effect? 
So network effects are really any um, uh, business or opportunity that gets, or any uh, process that gets more valuable as more and more people use it. So your Google search makes my Google search better. or Andy's movie watching might make your movie watching better. Uh, you get better recommendations. So the product or service gets better. Users are creating value for other users, whether they intentionally do so, such as user-generated content, or unintentionally do so, such as machine learning, which then makes product recommendations that match your tastes. So um, a platform is based on network effects where users are creating value for other users. That's the fundamental nature of, of what's happening in these platforms distinct from a product. So a product company, a product depreciates in value through use, where a platform appreciates in value through use. So it's a, it's a different way of creating value over time. That's fantastic. So Andy, you've been experimenting with uh with the network effect and uh, what I would, what we kind of affectionately refer to as the backyard innovation meetings. You want to talk a little bit about backyard innovations and then I would like to transcend that into a conversation between Malcolm and yourself, or Marshall and yourself around, uh, around the uh, inside marketplace as opposed to a two sided marketplace that people are more used to. Yeah. So, so the backyard innovation sessions, this has been an evolution and you, you, you've been part of some of the very early ones there, you know, in person and, Marshall has, has been able to join us remotely for a few, and we're working on scheduling. Once we're uh, not trapped in our homes and unable to travel anymore, we'll, we'll get that on the schedule. But, the, you know, it really started almost as a boondoggle a bit. We're, you know, I was the, the CTO for a big company, and we've been working with people like yourselves and figuring out, you know, how do we partner appropriately? What's, what do we have in common? How can we create some network effects? You know, these, these IoT-type solutions – so many people tend to be building the same solution over and over again. There's minimal reuse, minimal scale, and that you know kind of just drives me nuts. Um, it, you know, Marshall, I met Marshall the first time. He came in and spoke um, to a group of executives at, at, at PTC, and literally, it's one of these kind of cliche moments, but you know, changed the wiring of my brain to a bit. It's like everything I looked at now was looked at in terms of network effects, you know, end-sided markets. How do we do this at scale? So, you know, in, in learning, here's a guy who's, you know, an econo economist talking to a guy who's an IoT and this, this spark happens, this, you know, I'm calling accidental innovation. This idea popped up from a perspective different than mine, you know, so, so at the company I was at, you know, I was frequently told these, these ideas are too big, you're, you're, you know, thinking needs to mature, you know, that's a crazy idea, and maybe they were. And, uh, you know, I'm a member of, of, if you're a Peter Diamandis fan, he has a group called Abundance 360 that I, that I travel to in January. It's a couple of days of a conference with some of the biggest thinkers on the planet. And I tell these stories there and they'd say, no, 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 you're not thinking big enough. So on the one side, I'm, you know, not thinking big enough. On the other side, this is a crazy idea. So I'm kind of caught in this, you, you know, chasm of, well, which is it? And, you know, I really love being around people that have this abundance mindset that are always thinking bigger. You know, everything is answered with yes, how can we do that? No, no, that's not how things are going to work. You know, so that abundance conference is once a year. And I started thinking, well, why can't we do this far more often? Why is this conversation with, with varied perspectives and entrepreneurial mindsets only happening, you know, in January? So we'd, we'd get these people to the backyard in, in Austin. We'd spend a half a day in an office conference room setting doing what I call deep introductions. You know, who are you? What are you good at? And most importantly, what can you help the group with? And, and what are you asking of the group? What do you need help with? So we do, you know, 15 or 20 people take 10 minutes or 15 minutes on that. Then we retire to the backyard. We cater some Texas barbecue. We have a bunch of drinks. And, 
you know, frequently companies get started, really big ideas happen, you know, ideas you never would have had on your agenda. So, you know, leaving room for accidental innovation. So, so that, you know, transitioning this into the platform kind of that I'm envisioning is, you know, this digital orchestration is happening right now by me and by others. It's a very manual effort. You know, there's, you know, an example of the, of the uh, network effects you talked about, I'll give, and then that'll kind of show where this platform will, will happen. Then it can hand it back over to you and, and Marshall. But, you know, the, the telcos of the world are right now um, a commodity. Data is a commodity. If, if, if one service is a nickel lower a month, there's really no reason for me to stick with the first one. So they're all looking to move up the, the value chain in terms of getting a hold of some of the value the applications that use that data are providing. So if they can sell applications to their enterprise customers, you know, for whatever increase in whatever metric, more, you know, less energy usage, more, you know, higher quality, whatever it might be, now they can they can start to, to sell, uh, you know, things that are not commoditized. So if you think about the statement, if I could go to the network of technology providers and say, hey guys, anything that you build that saves money in the factory you know, Telco X is going to sell through with 10,000 sales reps. You know, how, how much interest do you think there will be for those, those you know, smaller uh, hardware, software, and service companies to get together and build apps? And, and now on the, on the flip side of that, you've got, you know, more demand for apps. Just, you know, it's the same story you saw with the Apple Store and, 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 and iOS. So more apps means more people buying, means more, you know, more interest in, to, to, to provide them and the whole system escalates. It's just a little bit more complicated because it's not just one buyer and one seller. You know, it's many different buyers with many different requirements, many different desired business outcomes on one side. And those those solutions to be developed require the cooperation of multiple different hardware, software, and service companies. Yeah, I think we continuously see that, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming somewhat cliche, but when they talk about IoT or digital transformation being a team sport, regardless of how big the company is or how small they are. It's very rare that any one company has a complete solution to any of the client's real business challenges that they're trying to solve. And so it really does take this concept of putting together a team with all of the right wedges to be able to go out and solve that problem. Uh, Marshall, could you uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the challenges as we start trying to scale from a typical two-sided mar marketplace, a platform like, an, say, an Uber, uh, versus an end-sided marketplace like uh, you and Andy and I have been talking about and envisioning over the last year or so? So, absolutely. Well, first of all, let's consider what is it that helps businesses scale. So, two things actually help scale uh, industries in general. So the first of these is the shift from, uh, you know, contract labor or human hours, you're actually paying someone to do it to algorithms. So that's one possibility is as you move into software, it's, uh, it's much easier to software to solve problems at scale and repeat uh, numerous, numerous times. The other possibility is moving from employees to crowds. Again, as you're doing uh, you know, the orchestration question, um, you know, you start to have large crowds or crowdsourcing production of different activities. So those are generally the ways that businesses scale, you know, as in you shift from content creation where, you know, Walt Disney has uh, experts in uh, storyboards and artists put things together versus Facebook, which just uh, hires literally millions or billions of people to post. Uh, so crowds, incredible amount of production there. Now, there's also a big difference in shifting from a B to C platform, where you might be matching a person to a ride or a, you know, a consumer to an app, 
to a B2B platform, whereas Andy said you've got multiple parties combining to create uh, a, a source of value. And there it helps to actually get templates uh, help to help uh, get the value created quickly among different groups. If each party starts to understand their role quickly, then you can reduce the negotiation costs of each of the different parties involved. You know, good B2B platforms include companies like Salesforce or SAP. Uh, matter of fact, the largest platform company in Europe is probably uh, SAP. Um, and they've done a phenomenal job of creating ecosystems of partners with independent service vendors and channel partners and hardware partners and software vendors, each of whom plays a very distinct role. The other thing that you start to do is to do, uh, go back to the governance I mentioned earlier. You then have tiered governance where at the lowest tier, you invite folks in that simply have technological compatibility. So to use SAP as a good example, when new apps and new services get on board, they have to pass technology requirements to make sure their uh, services play nice with other services and they're secure. So it's just a technological test. Then there's the next level of test where that actually it's so um, such high quality that it's SAP branded. So third parties come in and SAP Salesforce will sell third-party goods alongside their own. And then at the third tier, you've got these uh, very high-value partners that start to invest alongside you uh, that can actually even start to get strategic votes. They're actually helping choose big market segments to go after. Uh, and these B2B partners then will invest alongside you and actually help grow the market. So in achieving scale, these different partners will play different roles and you'll get them um, to actually help bring in resources that you yourself don't necessarily have. Uh, anything from the lowest level technology, even to some of the larger elements of setting uh, larger strategy. So Marshall, it sounds like this ties into another great point you made within the book, which is how in the platform economy, uh, competition is far less important than cooperation and collaboration. Uh, you know, that's a wonderful point. It shifts so much when you go from a product world to a platform world. What's fascinating in a platform world is that buyers can become suppliers uh, and competitors can become complementers. To use examples that lots of folks will already be familiar with. So you might get Skype, which is a Microsoft product, on um, Apple and Google products. Or you might get Google Maps on other uh, competing ecosystem products. Um, you, know, you might get uh, you know, Google uh, elements competing in Amazon uh, spaces. It's really quite interesting. The trick in this context is you have to keep control of the relationship and you have to keep control of the data. So you can invite competitors into your environment so long as you control those two things. I'll give you a wonderful story and example. I was doing some work with a large conglomerate uh, in uh, Southeast Asia and they were one of the largest manufacturers of tractors. Now, they were thinking what I thought was a really clever idea to create an Uber for tractors. Well, of course this makes sense. How often do you use a tractor if you're a farmer? Well, really twice a year, planting and harvest. So it's a perfect asset to create an Uber where you actually rent it for a little while and then turn it back as opposed to a small farmer having to have this you know, $100,000, million dollar asset. They just can't afford it. So Uber for tractors seemed like a great idea. But a lot of the senior management didn't want to let competing tractors in, like John Deere or um, uh, Hitachi tractors into the ecosystem. Not a good idea. In this case, it's great. Because if you can actually let them into uh, ecosystem, not only can you then rent out their tractors, you can actually then see the breakdown patterns of the demand for their products. 
you're getting data on your competitors' products you couldn't buy if you're offered to get it, and now you're getting it for free. It's amazing, right? Because you're now looking at their resources and you can actually sell these goods out on your platform. What happens is you start to control the marketplace. If you think this isn't the case, just ask Hachette, who is a major publisher on Amazon's platform. And Amazon, by controlling the marketplace, actually then gets to set terms and set the deals on it. So it's really that market power comes from controlling the marketplace. And yes, you may want to allow competitors into your ecosystem as long as you control the relationship as long as you control the data. That's fantastic. Uh, right after the break, I want to get into some discussions with regards to uh, how, pipe, how pipeline businesses get eaten by platform businesses and how we actually create a frictionless uh, marketplace uh, because I just think that uh, being able to, uh, to get uh, those things in, in, as are just key elements of this whole concept of a platform economy. It's about eliminating friction and it's about just how aggressive companies that create that demand pull that you're talking about with regards to a platform can eat the, uh, eat the traditional business model. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and go into our one break and then we'll be back right after the break with uh, Marshall and Andy. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Bootleg Advisors provides insight and guidance to executives with the courage to unlock hidden value in their enterprise. We do this by bridging the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. By helping organizations transform their current workforce to the workforce of the future, the Bootleg Advisors curated ecosystem of partners will make sure your business makes more, breaks less, and didn't spend. Move the areas of your business that need transformation from the to-do list to the got-done list with Bootleg Advisors. Visit bootleg.life to find out more. That's bootleg.life. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Bootlegged Innovations with host John Schultz. Feel free to email questions and comments about the show to john at bootleg.life. That's J-O-H-N at bootleg.life. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. It is a bootleg life for me after all. And just prior to the break, uh, Andy and Marshall and I were talking about this whole concept of platform economics and how do you go about creating frictionless entry and why why is friction uh, when it comes to platform economics a major challenge? Marshall, do you want to pick up on that topic? So you just highlighted one of the principal differences between traditional product strategy 
and platform strategy. So what do they teach you in business schools? One of the things they teach you is uh, you know, Porter's Five Forces, where they tell you how to build barriers to entry around the particular area that you're working in. This has a whole host of different problems when you start to look at the product world. So usually what you want to do is to defend your marketplace by building these barriers to entry, which allows you to charge high prices or keep your fat margins in there. But if you're doing orchestration as opposed to doing it yourself, you want as many people coming in to help you out as possible. So Uber wants as many drivers on its platform as possible. Airbnb wants as many rooms uh, on its platform as possible. Amazon wants as many merchants selling on its platform as possible. So you want permissionless entry of production consumption rather than building barriers to entry uh, against the boundaries of, in the particular marketplace. Give you other examples of that. If you think of the numbers of products that have been effectively uh, wiped out or had sales curbed by uh, Google Android or Apple iPhone, think of the uh, Garmin GPS, or you think of the Fitbit um, health fitness tracker, or you think of the HP calculator, or you think of the Filofax day planner, um, or you think of Nikon cameras. What the hell are the boundaries to those markets? How are you going to build boundaries at the edge of a market you can't even define? Those products don't look like one another. In fact, ecosystem partners are helping to provide all those assets in each of these ecosystems. So you want others to come in and help you out. You're looking at reducing the friction. Remember a platform, open architecture with rules of governance to create interactions. And you want as many parties in your ecosystem interacting in a positive way as possible to create that value. And so you really are reducing the friction. You're reducing the transactions costs to having more people involved in participating on your platform. Fantastic. Andy, you have anything you want to add on the whole frictionless entry side? Yeah, I mean, a good example of that that I saw, you know, at the corporate level is, is partnerships. If you think of two big companies um, trying to work together, historically, that partnership requires, you know, maybe months of, of lawyers working on things. And it, it, it just takes too long. By the time we can recognize that our stuff plus your stuff does something novel in the market, if we spend two months with paperwork going back and forth, we've missed the opportunity. Something has changed. Someone's beaten us there. You know, so I think there's this new concept of what I've been calling solution-based partnerships that, you know, yesterday we might be, or even tomorrow in one area where we're fighting tooth and nail and competing, but over here within the definition of this solution, I'm doing this and you're doing that and we understand it and let's go. Fantastic. So the next question I want to broach that was brought out in the book, is because of these things like frictionless entry, if you're able to accomplish it, because of the network effect, because of the ability to create an end-sided marketplace, you make a, there's an entire chapter dedicated to why platform businesses eat pipeline businesses. Do you care to expand upon that, um, Marshall? Sure. Let me give you a, a couple of examples of why, that's, uh, why I think that's true and then give you the reasons for what's actually happening. So if you take a look at the market capitalization relative to the number of employees at BMW versus Uber or Walt Disney versus Facebook or Marriott versus Airbnb. So BMW has a uh, market cap of about 51 billion and 131,000 employees where uh, Uber has market cap a little bit north of that, but only 16,000 employees. What's fascinating is that the ratio of market cap employees is about 10 times uh, for Uber. Or if you take Walt Disney, which is a wonderful example, Walt Disney has set iconic culture. They've got some of the world's best storyboarders and storytellers and videographers uh, in there. 
Um, Walt Disney has 200,000 employees, or they did before COVID-19, where Facebook had about 30. Funny thing is, uh, Facebook was worth more three, almost four times what Walt Disney is. It's, the ratio of market value to um, employees is about 20 times. It's extraordinary what's happening. And again, it's orchestration. You're getting third parties coming in to create the value. In effect, what's happening is you don't really way to see this is platforms are inverted firms. They've shifted production from things that they, from inside, from stuff that they're doing themselves to outside where third parties are coming in to help them out. This means they can scale incredibly fast. So compare BMW and Uber. BMW is a century old. Uber is only 10 years old. Or Marriott versus Airbnb. You know, Marriott was founded in 1927. Airbnb is founded in 2008. It's only, you know, 12 years old. They move incredibly fast. How do they do that? It's simple. Airbnb and Uber have zero marginal cost production. Third parties do it. Facebook has zero marginal cost production. Right? Some third party does it. You can scale as fast as you can add partners. It's unbelievable how platforms work. Uh, again, platforms as inverted firms scale better than traditional pipeline business models. Another reason why platforms beat products is that they innovate faster. And again, as I, as I said earlier, they appreciate in value rather than depreciate in value. And they also innovate faster. Uh, if you take a look at what happened in Google or Amazon or uh, Facebook. Basically, Apple doesn't invent Angry Birds. Third parties can experiment and create that. You don't bear the cost of experimentation and failure if an app doesn't succeed. But if Angry Birds does succeed, you get 30% of the, up the upside. The long tail of innovation is done by a large ecosystem of partners giving lots of experiments in lots of untapped market niches which gives the platform an ability to expand into other parts of the ecosystem and uh, rapidly innovate in ways that the firm itself doesn't actually necessarily have to try. So these platforms experiment and innovate by using and harnessing ecosystem partners. These innovative firms grow and expand faster. So in any market where the two compete, platforms always beat product companies. Marshall, I would be remiss if I left the topic of platforms eating traditional product companies. If we didn't talk at least about what I found whenever I did a little bit of research on your background and your Wikipedia page, there was an incident uh, and it came, comes into the introduction of you being the master of the Heimlich maneuver in 2010. Care to share that with the audience? <laughs> I'm not sure how you came across that one. And I can't claim to be the master of the Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> I, I've got to tell you when, uh, when you have to do it live as opposed to, you know, practicing in a gym somewhere, it's really a different thing. Um, so it, actually, I, I've, I was actually at a conference in uh, Washington, D.C. I was walking through the airport on, on the way to the conference, and, and some, uh, unfortunately, some poor fellow um, was choking in the uh, hotel lobby. Uh, and you know, most folks were just passing him by. He's making the, the choking motion, and there was a woman who's looking at us, pointing to, to help him, but she was hugely pregnant, so she couldn't help him out. You know, I ran up, uh, grabbed the guy. He's a big fellow. Uh, and tried first couple of squeezes, was not able to help him out, you know, really gave it everything I, um, I uh, could. And sure enough, out popped some, some lemon and lemon seeds uh, from some water they'd had there in the hotel lobby. Um, so managed to save the guy and, and um, couldn't believe it, actually. It was, 
it was a bit of a surprise, but very, very happy to help out. It's one of the prouder things I guess I've done. You know, you think about, you know, papers and citations only. This was actually helping someone out in the real way. So it was very happy to help with that one. Yeah, and later Wikipedia finds out that uh, my understanding is it was actually Don Cheadle's cousin, correct? I had no clue. I had no idea who it was. I just, you know, if a guy needed help, figured I'd, I'd step in and see if I could help him out. I had, that, that was news to me. So getting back to, uh, to, to Platform Revolution, uh, there's a, also an interesting chapter talking about the chicken or the egg when it comes to uh, what it actually takes to launch a platform. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that, Marshall, with regards to uh, successful strategies for launch. So launching a platform is tough. It is the case that you've got this chicken and egg problem. How do you, critic, how do you create critical mass of users who are creating value for one another or should create value for one another when there isn't yet value on the platform? So you don't have users, but then you're not creating value, so you don't have users. So there's a really challenging problem uh, to get that going. There are a number of strategies that different companies have tried. So let me give you three, uh, maybe four, is how different companies get off the ground. Um, one of them that should not be overlooked is just shoe leather. It's just busting your ass in order to try to get stuff done. You, you tell your story about, you know, trying to get out there and sell bootlegs of them. You were peddling all over the neighborhood with, you know, cinder blocks and cases full of uh, bootleg liquor, and that ain't easy to do. <laughs> if you take a look at what happened with Airbnb, when they were first getting out there, you know, again, it was air mattresses. And one of the things they did is they actually sent human beings to different cities to try to recruit people. That does not scale very easily. It's basically shoe leather. Uh, they sent photographers out. Uh, they tried advertising on Facebook and other things, and it didn't work nearly as well as actually sending a live human being. That doesn't scale. It really is labor intensive. It's expensive. Uh, when you're starting out a company, it, there's just nothing more than just busting your hump and really getting out there and, and working hard in order to get something done. In effect, what's happening is you're trying to create value to seed the platform. Other things that you can try to do is to seed the platform using someone else's content. So one of my favorite examples of that is brilliant. Um, I don't know if you know, go back to the story of um, Acrobat Reader. Well, you've got people that produce Acrobat files, you've got people that consume Acrobat files. Adobe, when it couldn't get it launched, had a very hard time getting it out there until it convinced the federal government to issue all tax documents in PDF. Well, all of a sudden, the government saved on postage, and every taxpayer needed uh, the documents, and so you could actually download them. So that was seeding the platform with useful content. Interestingly, Reddit did that. The initial founders actually posted a lot of their own content initially, so seeding is something that you can do. A third strategy that you can try is piggybacking or borrowing someone else's network. So, for example, when PayPal got started, they borrowed eBay's network. They actually got, uh, they made sales um, and they, um, they did a lot of activity on top of eBay to sell buyers and sellers and try to use that transaction. Or if you look at, again, Airbnb was brilliant. They were very clever. They tapped into the APIs on the Craigslist network and pulled rooms from Craigslist and then pushed rooms onto Craigslist, again, tapping another network. So piggybacking another network uh, is another strategy in there. A fourth strategy that you can try, marquee buyers or sellers. So can you get a big consumer or a big producer to pull their network onto the platform? 
Uh, a great example of that, when Microsoft is trying to get um, you know, users onto its Xbox platform, it literally bought uh, Bungie to pull all of the users that came with users uh, onto the platforms. If you can reward a marquee player to come with you, uh, and they can often pull users on there and create initial seedback, what you have to do is get critical mass. That's a half dozen different strategies. So seeding the platform, piggybacking on another network, you know, really just uh, providing a lot of the services yourself as you really uh, um, go work hard to get things out to launch the platform. Any of those can do. Oh, by the way, another one is competitions. When um, Uber, sorry, when uh, Google launched Android, it offered uh, lots of prize money for developers offering new apps on its ecosystem for things that it hadn't created, things that it might create. So competitions of that sort is another way uh, to that, again, to get interactions taking place on top of your platform. Interesting. So you made reference there three or four times uh, to another concept in your book, and that is the fact that viral growth is a pull process. Do you care to explain that a little bit more? So there's a big confusion between network effects and virality. So on network effects, users on the platform, adopters are creating value for other adopters. So simple examples are YouTube content or Amazon reviews or other things where you're reviewing products that help other people who are also using it. Virality is pulling non-adopters onto the platform. My favorite example of that is really, you know, I don't know how many of you used OpenTable. OpenTable, of course, you make dinner reservations out there and you can actually find out, you know, uh, what the ratings are there. When you make a reservation, you're invited to um, send out an email to your friends and associates, other guests who could join you, to tell them, here's the restaurant, here's what time, and here's whether or not it's got parking. But what this does is it also provides a way to onboard them onto OpenTable. What they've done is you've taken an information germ or seed and propagated it over another network, such as you know, instant messenger, such as email, to you know, the host, which is you, to the target, which is your friend, to get them and pull them onto the platform. It's a really clever mechanism of taking these information seeds and using other people uh, to pull them onto the platform. You can do this also with um, you know, Pinterest or Facebook, do this with imagery. They might actually get a hook and you can send that to your friends and actually pull others onto the platform. That, those viral strategies are other ways of growing the platform to use the existing user base to invite others who are not current users using uh, points of value that might actually uh, bring them on exactly like the open table reservation. That's awesome. So Andy, you and I have been talking about the, for about almost two years now. And uh, I think you and I have both, when it comes to the platform that you're looking at pulling together, I think we've oscillated between chicken and egg. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, where you are today with uh, with regards to uh, the platform that you're looking to pull it together? Yeah, yep. Um, that's a great question. You know, we've, you know, I've been thinking about this for closer to five years now. Really, how do we create reusability and scale where we've got businesses that don't understand which technologies are useful and what problems those technologies can solve? And we've got technology providers that, have the same problem. They don't know what problem they should solve. And even if they did, they still have to go collect the other wedges to build a whole solution. You know, the end buyers want to buy from someone they trust. You know, people work with people they like and people they trust. Um, so, so how do we pull all these different pieces together? And, you know, they're also going to, the, the buyers want to write one check and have one throat to choke. So how do we also get, you know, potentially five different business models 
to be paid at a fair way, an equitable way when there's say a thousand dollars a month coming from a single buyer. So we got to find someone to be, you know, take on the, the, the financial risk. I'm going to take on the potential, you know, legal risk, you know, calling that a, a prime. And then there's a route to market who has the relationship with the customers. You've got, you know, five or six different roles that I think we've landed on and we've got some, you know, vernacular around. So what I've been doing, you know, both of us really in, in our own different ways is collecting people that are those players within a loosely bound platform. There's, there's not, you know, a formal bunch of software that people are signing up for. We should have that here, you know, maybe even by the end of the month, but I've got, you know, hundreds of technology providers. You've got, you know, hundreds of, of people that, you know, have C-level relationships into companies that would, that would turn a solution on if they knew it existed. So we've got all the players. I think we're still in this mode of figuring out how to do this in any other way than fully manual. And uh, so that the platform that, that I'm creating with a couple of partners is called Manifest. And you know what we're trying to do is create this trusted environment where meaningful connections come together so that businesses on the one side can find access to all of the different components they need on the other side and ultimately uh, make the world a smaller place for those of us that are trying to change it. So Marshall, that leads uh, to an interesting conversation that the three of us have also been having on what you're kind of looking at as your next body of work. Uh, you know, Andy talks about this digital pursuit, a trivial pursuit game where you don't have an entire solution. Just like if you suck at arts and literature, you're probably never going to get the, win the game unless you uh, get served a softball. Uh, and trying to figure out what each one of those individual wedges, how they should be compensated over time for their contribution to the overall solution. Uh, do you have any foreshadowing or hypothesis that you uh, would care to share with the audience that you're testing out uh, with this next body of work? So the, the next areas of research are actually uh, threefold. Uh, quickly, I'll just mention the most immediate one. It's actually trying to address fake news on platforms. So what can we do in, in politics and actually getting false advertising and fake news off of platforms? So that's something I've been working on. Hopefully I have some answers for that in the next, uh, next month. Um, but the one that I think you're uh, specifically referring to is in the different pie wedges or dividing different sources of value. You've got so many different opportunities for multiple parties to create value for one another. So in your B2B context, you've got different, uh, the, the hardware vendors, software vendors, solution providers, all can work together. If you look at uh, edX, for example, you might have reusable course content that you could use to create new courses. If you look at uh, top coders from the other classes, you could remix subroutines. If you look at video, you might be able to remix copyrighted content uh, with other people uh, working on it. If you look even at medical data, or gene sequences, right? Someone creates a new cure for COVID-19 using your gene sequence. How much do they owe you? How does that work? In fact, there are some formulas in economics that we can use to borrow for a total uh, uh, value package that will allow you to portion out that value to the individual contributors. So what's, in some sense, the marginal contribution of each contributor to a larger system of value? We can actually do that. So the, the next... Uh, body of work will actually putting together the formulas to help with that. There's actually something that won a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago called the Shapley formula. We will be implementing that and making it possible for you to help divide out that value so that you can rapidly create different configurations of assets that will pull together and create value, but then also fairly determine how much value you should be able to take back from whatever it is that you contributed to the system of value. So that's, that's the thing I think that you're referring to. 
Absolutely. Um, so that, that, then there are some other bigger projects after that, but that's the one I think you're referring to. No, that's absolutely the one I was referring to. That's, that's just absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to see uh, that, that next body of work because I know it's something that as we, as Andy and I work uh, with our other partners to try to solve some really large, interesting opportunities in places like manufacturing, that's always the question is how do you figure out how to equitably make sure that everyone that contributed to the solution is taken care of over time? Yeah, an entrepreneurial startup, right? What do each of the founders contribute? How do you actually work that out? You know, or if you if you have a great idea at a corporation, how much should they give you, or should you leave the company? Right, all those all of those different things. If you have fair value, you can solve those problems much more easily. So, a little bit of foreshadowing into next week's show, which is the topic is going to be disruption. And one of the final questions before we get into a couple of wrap-up things uh, that I'd like to ask for both you and Andy is which market sectors do you think are most ripe for platform disruption? Why? And then goes along with a little story with regards to how far out do you see it? How many C's is it? And what is a C is actually, as I found out in Eastern Kentucky, a C is actually a formal unit of measure. One of my colleagues and I was lost in the mountains of, of Eastern Kentucky, and uh, we were absolutely late for an appointment, and we asked a, a person that was standing along the side of the street if they could tell us how to get to this manufacturing site. And the person looked at us and said, oh, that's easy. It's a, you go three C's, take a left, you go another C, it'll be on your right. Chris and I looked at each other, and we go, what the heck is a C? And he goes, oh, you're not from around these parts. He goes, around these parts, a C is an official unit of measure. Look right now, how far can you see? Once you get there, look again real quick, because that's your second C. Go three Cs, take a left, another C, it'll be on your right. And you know what? It got us there. So my question is, what markets do you think are most ripe for disruption? Why? And how many Cs out is it? Andy, you want to take that first? Yeah, I mean, I think all, all markets are, are, are ripe. You know, I'm my, my focus is not on the market that's going to be consuming the disruption, but how do we, you know, more quickly and repeatedly create solutions for each industry segment that will do the disruption. And I don't think we're too many C's out, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this today, you know, albeit in a manual way, you know, that's what I've been doing for the last years is, is helping, you know, I've created this platform, but it's, it's just not, you know, hasn't scaled yet on the one side I'm, I'm, I'm doing, Innovation as a service, helping businesses understand how emerging tech can be applied to their new business products, services, or business models. And then on the other side, bringing together the right technology providers that need to do that, to, you know, that are required to make that desired business outcome real. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, small network effects happen. The more businesses that realize this is possible, that, that innovation can happen externally, that it doesn't have to be some internal person solving the problem. You know, people say, hey, how did you solve that? And, and they come they come talk to us. And the more companies on the other side that, that have, you know, technology pieces, they're saying, hey, how did you get that customer? How did you get that deal done? So I don't think it's too far out. Um, I think the disruption is, you know, it's a shaping strategy. We, we're not necessarily inventing anything new here. I think this is a, a green space approach. And, you know, what we're trying to do with Manifest is, shape that strategy and it, it's you know it takes some time because you need so many partners but i think we've got those partners identified and willing Marshall? so let me give you a couple of industries so um ones that i think are going to transform the platforms um you know in the near and longer term 
Um, one of them are obviously ones that you're already working on, things like Internet of Things. That's clearly going to be a platform industry. Energy and smart grids, interestingly, I think will also be a platform industry as you do market trading of uh, energy packets. Uh, one that's interesting that lots of people might not consider are things like architecture and uh, building information modules. I think construction uh, is likely to become platformized as you actually do design and you create markets for uh, parts. Um, one that's a little bit farther out is healthcare. Um, there you've got risk um, and the HIPAA requirements, the health uh, requirements, which mitigate the transformation from happening quite so quickly. Uh, another fascinating one is education. You know, we faculty members are on the chopping block just as much as everyone. So as you see, you know, the massive open online courses, education uh, is going to be moving toward platform business. And then one that I see a little bit farther out is also a big segment of research is city as platform. I expect to see lots of work there. To give you the C's on it, some of these finance is already happening and fascinatingly education I thought was going to be about five years out, but with all of a sudden, three weeks ago, my dean told me, you're going online uh, because <laughs> of COVID-19. So that was about five years, but I'm seeing it now. Um, so, so that one is happening. So I think it's a we're going to see a lot more pressure uh, in several industries happening, finance is happening because in Europe they've gone to open banking. <clears throat> so I expect to see that one happening sooner with seeing healthcare farther out. Well, fantastic. I really appreciate uh, you and Andy being on the show. Uh, as I mentioned, next week uh, the topic is going to be disruption. And I'll have Angelique Mooring, who is the CEO of GainX, uh, and Don Matlas, who's also known as the, uh, the, the FDA whisperer on the show, talking specifically about disruption in the life sciences business. Uh, so I think that uh, between those two guests next week, cap, uh, piggybacking onto this conversation, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking even more and diving into uh, this topic of disruption. Uh, but, but between now and next week, I also want to uh, ask the, the, the listening audience, if you have any questions, if there's topics for future shows, uh, please send me an email at johnabootleg.life. And uh, in the meantime, between now and uh, and when we and, and when we meet again, just remember one thing: keep on bootlegging. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 